coffee today and like riding on adrenaline. So it's time to slow down so that we can hear God speak together through the word. So let's take a moment of quiet and center ourselves and let our, our spirits and minds catch up to our bodies in this room and be prepared to hear from God. Father in heaven, we trust that when your word is read in community, that you move, that your spirit can move and transform us, that you long to remind us of your love and to call us into life with you. I pray that you would remove the obstacles and barriers that would get in the way of that and that we would receive you as you are. We need help with that big time. And so we long for you to move us in this time, including me. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're in the Gospel of Mark today. We're going to dive right in. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. We're just going to read it all the way through, and then we'll start to break it down. Things highlighted in yellow and pink and green and various and sundry other colors are things I'll draw attention to throughout here. So let's just start reading here. Verse 7. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, hearing all that he was doing, they came to him in great numbers from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and the region around Tyre and Sidon. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crush him. For he had cured many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God. But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. He went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. So he appointed twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. You read that all the time and realize, I don't know how to say that out loud. And I'll find that out while I'm reading it right now to you. <laughs> that is, sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So as we read these, this passage, we see here a contrast between how the crowds respond to Jesus and how the followers of Jesus, his disciples, respond to him. And what we notice is that a lot of times we would imagine that when you hear Jesus, you either fully reject him, right outright and obviously, or you fully accept him. But what we actually see here is there's an inversion in between that that looks like liking him and being attracted to him, but is actually rejecting what he's actually after. And that's what these crowds do. So we're going to kind of break it down, what they do, the crowds do, and how we're tempted to participate in that, and how we're tempted to share Jesus in a way that cultivates that kind of response and then how the disciples respond instead. So we already stepped right ahead. That the crowd threatens to crush Jesus with their agendas. So notice here, Jesus, as you would imagine, he's going around healing, he's teaching with authority, he's doing crazy miracles, and as you would expect, naturally, a crowd forms, and then Jesus' uh, friends are all like, dude, now's the time for a platform. When he gets you a social media account and a publicist and gets you a book published and you can reach millions. Think of, but consider how many you can reach, man. Consider the magnitude. 
And Jesus is like, nah, bro, give me a boat, I'm gone. <laughs> he does not want time with the crowds. He's concerned about the crowds and suspicious of the crowds and as they form. And he sees a crowd forming. And instead of saying, now's the time to maximize my influence and get more people on board and reach as many people as quickly as possible, as fast as possible, and have a nice discipleship pyramid scheme that can save the whole world, world in six months, he's like, I need a boat to peace about here, man. This is his humanity. He's like, I can't handle this right now. And so why does he want to get away with it from them? It says because they would want to crush him. And it's not because they want to kill him. Other crowds are going to form later. They're going to want to do that. This crowd wants what Jesus has to give them, but they want it on their, their terms. They're expecting him to conform to their agenda, and in doing so, they want to squeeze him. That verb for crush, what a word. It has the connotations of a squeezing, a narrowing, where you imagine the full breadth of what Jesus is after, and their desire is to narrow him, to squeeze something smaller than what he actually wants to do that's just going to fit what they want at the time. And what's really hard about this is that what they want has like good components to it, and yet there's a, they're out of order. They're not considered within respect to Jesus' larger vision that they are invited to participate in. They want to squeeze Jesus in to come to them. They're expecting him to conform to their agenda. And when they do that, they reduce Jesus from what he's actually about and crush him. And so what Jesus gives them is actually what they really want, which is not him. So he's about to get in the boat and piece up out of there. And so let's talk about the two ways in which they want to squeeze Jesus into their agenda. Again, these are things that could be good things, but they're out of order and not in submission to Jesus' larger vision. So come back to slide, brother, or sister. I thought it was Barrett back there for a second. It's not Barrett. <laughs> oh, I got to hit this quote from my man Eugene Peterson, outstanding pastor, about reducing Jesus uh, into our agendas. He says, will we let God be as he is, majestic and holy, vast and wondrous, or will we always be trying to whittle him down to the size of our small hands, insist on confining him within the boundaries we are comfortable with, refuse to think of him other than in images that are convenient to our lifestyle. But then we are not dealing with the God of creation and the Christ of the cross, but with the dime store reproduction of something made in our image. Boom. Thank you, Eugene. Let's move on and swiftly along to see how the crowd and us are tempted to do just that. How do, what does the crowd expect from him? Improvement of their physical lives on their terms and their timing. It says that the people heard that he cured diseases, and so they all pressed upon him in order to touch him so that they could squeeze a little bit of that healing power for them. And can you blame them? I mean, if you're in the first century and you don't have access to medical care and you're faced with possibly what are now curable diseases, but for many of us now even, with all the medicine available, many diseases aren't curable, and they hear of a person that can heal with a word or a touch, you're going to maybe think, I'm going to go get me some of that for me and my loved ones. And they're not wrong for that. As I've said to you many times in the past year, Jesus is about human flourishing. He's about life. He's for full human flourishing of the total person. And that's his healings fit within that. But his healings are not the whole story. His whole story is a grand, long-term vision of the restoration of all creation. And the pinnacle of that is a reconciling of our relationship with him spiritually. But that includes within that package a healing that is to come. 
And so they see that he's able to heal and that he generally wants to heal. But what they want to compress Jesus on is they want that healing on their terms and timing. And so what the gospel actually shows us is that Jesus can heal, that he wants to heal, that he will heal eventually, but the only thing up in the air is when. And it's really a mystery to us about how some get to enjoy that win now, and many of us have to wait on that win. But even the ones that enjoy the healing now are going to die, and they wait on the long-term healing that is to come. But these folks expect that, and I kind of would group this into all improvement of our physical well-being. That again, God wants us to flourish. He promises to be our provider. He tells us to ask him for daily bread. He says that we can put our physical lives into his hands and that he cares for us more than he cares for the birds and the flowers whom he gives plenty to. And so he says we should indeed ask him for these things. But yet we ask with an open hand to release it and say we don't expect it. We're not entitled to it. We know that we can trust him with what we need. But these folks think, no, he's expected to conform to my needs. And how true is that for us now? I can't tell how many people, the reason why most people lose their faith is because they cannot square a good, caring, interested, concerned, present, engaged, loving God with their pain that they cannot get rid of, with circumstances that are crushing them, that are despairing them, that they cannot change. And so even if they mean well, and there's not a rebellious spirit about it, they come to God and think, why hasn't God relieved me of my suffering? I cannot, I cannot be with him. Instead of thinking, I just need God. This suffering is evidence, I just need God. And he may not uh, heal it now, but he is my ultimate hope that one day, whatever the now is that's bad is not permanent. And that's a difference in angle. Do you see what I'm saying here? Expecting him to do it now, thinking we know what he can do and what he's going to do, and therefore we expect to rush that into the present for me now today. People lose their faith with him for that all the time. And for good reason, but it's reducing what he's actually after. And so we're called to indeed trust him with our physical lives, but on his terms and timing, which there's often not an answer to the why for that. You say, why won't he heal me? Why won't he make me better? Why won't he get me out of this situation? Why is the most frustrating question to ask because it almost never gets an answer. And so even if you are suffering, Don't search for the why that you can put a bow on. It's like, oh, it's to learn this lesson. You don't suffer because God's trying to teach you a lesson. He's not purposely making you suffer to teach you something right now that you can put a bow on. It's all roped into something that he says doesn't belong in creation and that one day he will remove entirely, but we wait on him for that day. But these crowds want it now. So what's the second way? Second way is an affirmation of their political agenda. All right, we've got to do some exegetical work here. God, be patient with me. When we see Son of God, we think God's or Jesus' divinity. We think, oh, this is the second person of the Trinity. He who existed before all things, he is God. That is true, and that theology developed uh, through the New Testament times. In the, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, though, that title is more associated with a political ruler. In the Psalms, Son of God is used to refer to the king, the king of Israel, God's chosen king. And there's an expectation, a Jewish expectation, that when God would finally come to make things right, he's going to appoint a son of God, his divine agent, to be the new king and, and, and establish, reestablish his political reign. 
And so when crowds formed, when they see Jesus moving around and teaching, and he's showing messianic kind of authority, they are gathering around him, and they either gather around to crown him as king or to crucify him because they don't want him to be king. But all of them presume this person might be the Messiah we're waiting for. He is the king. And so we see in this crowd a strange demonic energy that is trying to claim that title of Jesus, which is indeed true, but from a demonic spirit, it is, it is trying to narrow out what it means for Jesus to be king. So it is indeed true that Jesus is the coming king the people of God were always waiting for, but what is not true is he's not fitting what their expectations are of that political agenda. And so the demonic energy that's kind of moving with the crowd, and that's how the powers of principalities work. It's weird for us to talk about, but the biblical framework is that there is a spiritual backdrop before all we, behind all we see in the physical persons around us that is like a, a war zone between God and his spirit and his angels and demonic energies. And those demonic energies sometimes are like found within larger ideologies and larger human organizations that are not like any one person within it, but a whole group carries an energy that is like, that is not of God. And that energy is the one that's trying to narrow what it means for Jesus to be that coming king and expect him to do it their way. And Jesus is regularly silencing them, which he does. He's like, don't tell them that I am that title because he spends his whole ministry reframing those political expectations. Yes, I am the coming king. Yes, I'm establishing the kingdom of God, but not in the way you think I am. You want me to kill all God's enemies, the people, right now, and reestablish a physical rule in this land. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what the plan is. The plan is the real enemies are sin, Satan, and death, and I, my goal is to crush them and to invite all you who talk to each other like enemies into this worldwide eternal family. And it's going to be a long wait so be prepared to suffer with me as we do it together. And so, naturally, we better talk about the fact that most people don't want to talk about this, that the American church is pretty wrapped up in some unhealthy political alignments. It's not okay. And I, I think it is the maybe single most threat to the long-term health of this church and churches that look like ours to conflate the Christ of Scripture with political ideologies and frameworks and politicians. And we need to do the hard but necessary work to disentangle that. That's like the primary thing I want to be trying to be doing. And there'll be times people don't like it. And man, I would just rather go be a garbage man than be a handmaiden of a church that would just cozy right up to, I actually like garbage men. We have good friends that are garbage men, Cincinnati, but then to be the handmaiden of a church that just cozies up to political ideology, I'm not going to do it. So I just talked about this. Let me show you this picture here. This is a Jesus 2020 banner, and this was at the January 6th insurrection. So you see people that are gathered to commit violence and to uh, do a protest, but Jesus' flags were all over the place, and that's the biggest burden. I expect human beings to be chasing after power. I expect human beings to be rivalrous and to seek political rebellion and to fight and to long for more. What I cannot cope with is when we tie Jesus to that longing. And that's a huge problem. 
we need to disentangle that. And you may be like, hey, hang on a second, man. Uh, that's not us. You know, there's like a few hundred people down there, a couple thousand. That's not the majority. But they, the people that were there, represent larger movements that sympathize with and make room and space for that way of thinking. So check this picture out. This is a bumper sticker. If you can't read it, it says, pro-gone, pro-God, pro-gun, pro-life, pro-Trump, with American flag. All in one go, on bumper sticker. Now, you may be able to tease those out, have some reasons for guns, maybe a pro-life. Clearly, God's about life. There's a, a, a healthy version of patriotism that maybe you may attach to political leaders that you think will do the best for our country. But the notion that you would tie those together as like core tenets of your faith, that is heretical. It doesn't belong, man. It's not okay. So like that, so there may be a small circle of people that go gather in Washington, D.C. with Jesus flags. That's within a larger circle that would sympathize with this bumper sticker. And that's within a larger circle that looks like us, where we have friends and family that sympathize to varying degrees with that way of thinking. And it influences even this church, for sure, where we have friends that aren't here right now. And I think some of that reason that we're here before, and I think some of that reason is tied to having an expectation that Jesus must affirm their political way of seeing things. And that's what's most tragic, is that people will leave their church for their politics, but I'm begging for people to leave their politics for their church. And I've been doing it for a long time. My last church was not a, uh, a it was very progressive, very progressive. Most of them were progressive, and I was always pulling them back. But they, there was a sense in which they expected Jesus is for my whole side. And they would affirm the whole side. And I'm like, man, is there anything within your side that you think Jesus is a problem with? And they stare off into the clouds. Like, probably not. I'm like, come on, man. You know he's not for everything you're about. And I would say for both sides, if you think that Jesus is all in on your side, and when someone asks a critical question, you're like, you get defensive with what about your side, that is evidence of an unhealthy idolatry. Instead of saying, yeah, you might be right. I should consider that. And this, all that, this is all a discipleship issue where the, the American church, and I participate in this. I've been leading it for over a decade now, has failed with discipleship. This is a discipleship issue that it gets to this point to where people will leave their church for their politics, and politics becomes a higher identity marker than the church. I don't know how many young uh, people I counseled at my last church that were in the dating process that would have a much bigger concern when their uh, dating prospect was not aligned with them politically than if they weren't Christian. I'm like, hang on a second, he loves Jesus, and he seems to be kind to you, seems to be a generally good character person, he's willing to come here to church with you, but you're really concerned about his politics not aligning with you? Come on now. That might be an unhealthy weighing of that. And so there can be merits to all the different sides about political ideologies and how we think through them and stuff, but the biggest tension is when we think that Jesus is all about those and we expect him to conform to them. He's not about that. I think he's got harsh and detailed criticism for both of them. And we better release with open hands whatever we think he, we expect him to do on our timing and say, oh, we need to be, let Jesus be king and let him critique our ways and refuse to be discipled by news organizations that when they have to go to court for defamation, their argument that holds up in court is, dude, 
we don't tell them the truth here. This is all for entertainment. Like, we're, no one should be paying attention to us. And they win with that argument. We are discipled by these organizations and by algorithms on Facebook that say, hey, here's how your side can be strengthened. And I would just beg you to let the church and the scriptures and Jesus and the Spirit disciple you more than the screens we consume. And in my 25 minutes a week, I'm going to throw down on that. And I beg you for the 167 and a half hours a week that you're not with me, that you guard your minds and watch for it. This is sermon about a bunch of other things, but I thought, hey, now's the time to talk about it. So. And if you weren't clapping, I love you to death, and I would like to have a t- conversation with you. I always invite that. Don't presume, if you're not clapping, that this place isn't for you. It is for you. I'm really glad you're here, and we should get coffee this week. I'm serious. All right, let's move on. So, disciples are different. They are not a crowd that forces Jesus to conform to their agenda. This is what disciples do. They, he says, he went up to the mountain, called them who he wanted. They came to him, and he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to be sent out to proclaim the message, and to have authority to cast out demons. So let's break this down. i got four things to say about what the disciples do and said in contrast to the crowds. you got to go to the next slide because I don't have this to memorize. Okay, first, they obey the call of Jesus on his terms. He summons them, and they just go. <laughs> They're not here and say, you need to come over here to where I am. He's like, I'm over here by this boat trying to flee this crowd, and if you want to come with me, come with me. They drop things and they go. There's the obedience there that says, I'm not here to ask the king to do what I want. I'm here to give the king what he wants. If he is as good as he says he is, he knows what's better for me anyway. So I'm going to go do what he says and trust it's going to work out. And they don't know what the journey is ahead of them. They don't know that literally 11 of the 12 are going to die early deaths. And yet they go with him anyway because they trust he knows what's best for them. So there's an obedience there. That, that starts out with, how can I say yes to Jesus? It's a posture of trust, not a posture of suspicion. A posture that says, I'm not expecting Jesus to come my way. I'm going his way. He calls them. And it says he calls whom he wants. And sometimes American, uh, you know, Western folks get freaked out about that, like, oh, he only wants some and not others. That is not language to kind of say only some get called and others don't. It's language to say God's grace is emphatic every step of the way of discipleship. For those who are disciples to look back and realize, I don't know how I'm here. It's clearly by grace. That's their language for showing that. It's not language to say some are sent called to hell because he didn't want them. That's language for emphatic that God's grace is behind it. So the second thing I want to talk about, what do they do now that they get called? They seek to be, that is not English, man. I edited these slides, seek to be his presence. They seek to be in his presence more than they seek his stuff. The crowd doesn't want Jesus. They want Jesus' stuff. They want his kingdom, but they don't want the king. But the disciples just want him. They just want to be with him. And that's what happens when you get follow around a first century rabbi. You literally go walk around with that brother all day long for years on end. They wake up next to the man. They eat all their meals with him. They go to bed next to the man. They wake up, and he's there again. It is the, the primary feature of a disciple is being with Jesus. Seeking his presence and desiring him just because he's him, not because you find him useful or you might be able to get glean some of his stuff or that you like his advice or he can give you some self-help or improvement or be a nice piece of furniture in your life and we can get some Christian decorations. You just want him. That's the drive. 
to be with him in, in his presence. If that sounds kind of esoteric, it's not. You are with Jesus by being with his spirit who's in your body if you, lo- if you have chosen to be faithful to Jesus. He's with you already all the time. And so it's not about going to get his presence out there. It's recognizing if you want Jesus, he already is with you and wants you. And it's like basically your job is just empty. Just get everything else out the way so that you can experience what you already have. You're already his child in whom his spirit is dwelling. And you get to just be with him and enjoy him in prayer, with scripture, and community, and by participating in the life he's called us to. And so it's an invitation to not pursue Jesus only when you're asking him for stuff, but pursue him just for him. I feel convicted right now because I listened to a podcast at 3 in the morning today when I couldn't sleep that was talking about how easy it is to tell people what Jesus calls us to, but not how to do it. And I realized, oh, man, I'm kind of doing that today. So we have to talk about that in community and over the course of a long period of life, like how to do that, but that's kind of the, the map ahead. So not only with him, he's not trying to just hang out and chill, eat Cheetos and watch Netflix. He's got us doing something. So they be in his presence. Next slide. To participate in his mission and his purpose. So then, think about it. You're not saying, here's my political agenda for world change. I want you, Jesus, to come say yes to my thing. Give me your name so I can put you on a poster and go participate in my agenda and you can sacralize the thing that I want to do. Instead, you say, Jesus, what are we doing now? And Jesus, you've got to proclaim his message uh, to the world around you, that he is king, that he knows what's best for us and wants what's best for us, and he's going to make us right. And you invite people into that. And you're with him often enough to learn what his mission even is, to gather the character he's calling us to, to see his large-scale goal and vision for the world, and and to join him in that. This taps in, again, to two human needs, to belong and to participate, to like be in fellowship and to have a purpose in the world. And Jesus checks both those boxes like that. As soon as you join the family, you get to be with him all the time. And anything you do can, can be caught up into his mission to announce his message to the world. And finally, you partner with any other person who would ever say yes to doing the same. And you got to be okay with all of them. Let's go to this next slide here. We see this list of names here, most of which we can barely pronounce a lot of times. And if you're reading in quiet time, you're like, yeah, 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 there's the names, there's the names, there's the names. Get it to the next part of the story. But the names are important. So I want to highlight two here. Matthew, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, is a tax collector. So that's like one extreme end of the political spectrum. In the Jewish world, they've gone all the way to Rome. They've forsaken any hope that his, their people are going to have any political say, and they're like, I just want to cozy up to Rome, get Rome's stuff, their security, and their wealth, and betray the people. Versus Simon, the Canaanian, this guy, that's a word that is tied to the Aramaic, Canaan, which means zealot. And there was a Jewish political party called the Zealots that were not, didn't have zeal by praying all the time. Their zeal was something they did with a knife as N.T. Wright says, and that they took it on themselves to engage in political violence. They were radical Jews that thought, those filthy, nasty Romans should not be in control of our land. We will slay them on our watch, and we will do it because God's behind us. And so Matthew is exactly the kind of person Simon would kill pre-Jesus. And Jesus is like, Simon, man, I want you to follow me, but you got to eat with Matthew all the time. 
And like when you're with me all the time, Matthew's also going to be with me all the time. And Matthew, we know you betrayed Simon, but you got to live with him too. And so somehow to be with Jesus and participate in his mission means being with these political rivals. And man, is that not a word for us today? I've seen too many friendships and families be torn apart based on, again, Facebook driving people insane and melting their brains to be like, uh, suddenly I'm going to break this relationship of decades. Jesus is the one that has the power to call us out of that, calling right out of all that demonic energy and saying, you get to come be in my family and do my mission and be with people whom you would have hated otherwise. And so if you're in church and you're like, man, I don't even like those people. They don't follow, they don't have the same political agreement as me. And I didn't like small group because it came up and I didn't like what she had to say about it all. It's like, good. <laughs> That's what you need. That's literally what your soul needs for the next stage of spiritual formation is to be with someone who doesn't see it like you and recognize you only are even in the same room because of the power of Jesus. That is like his grace. It's grace for you that he gives you friendship with people you would have hated otherwise. Man, we need that so bad. If we, we receive this from Jesus, his agenda for us that runs deeper than the screaming match that we see all around us, that calls us into a life to be with him anytime, even when our emotions say no, even when the, the Satan accuses us and says we don't belong, he says, you are my child. I want to be with you all the time. I delight in you. And that you, despite your skill set or giftings or education or lack thereof, says you get a mission and you, when you think, man, I'm lonely and socially awkward and don't know how to talk to people, you get a family. Like, he get, you get all that now by virtue of grace. His blood did the work, and we just say, yes, I'd rather have that instead. Our goal is just to empty the will and say, I don't want my will, I want your will. And when he says, okay, it's going to cost you something for us not to be scared and say, we'll take it. I'd rather have suffering with you and your people than suffering in this world alone and without hope. In the face of this political crisis we're in and the cultural upheaval, the hope is not things are going to get better in three months. The hope is as long as I'm with Jesus, things will be all right. As long as I'm with Jesus, there's hope for the future. And it may not be a hope that we recognize immediately now, but it's hope that is promised for eternity. He has promised to make things right and to be with his family, his children forever, and we get that by, by his blood. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in desperate need for that healing. May you wrap your hands and your arms around this church and ground us in you. We need help. May you clear the noise away from our, our heads and our hearts, our ears. Cut through it so that we can hear your voice and say yes to you. May you guard us from the lies, from the violence, from the fear, from the hopelessness, from the chaos. And may we just say yes to you. We don't know what that journey will look like, but we know we are with you, and so we trust that you have us in your hands. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who makes that possible by the power of his blood. In Jesus' name I pray.